Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So how our worship affects our outside relationships. I titled this the expansion of worship because there's two ways that God gets more worship. And that's God's greatest goal in the universe is to get more worship. That sounds really self-centered in one way, but that's okay for God because when you're the most awesome, good being in the universe, the best possible thing for anyone else to do is be totally enamored with you. Okay? God's like a politician that actually follows through with his promises. Does that make sense? Some of you are going to get that on the, on the way out. Right? Politicians are enamored with themselves. They publish themselves all over the place and then often don't follow through on their promises. God's just the opposite. He's saying, no, I'm going to follow through with every promise that I make. I'm going to make it possible for you to do that. So he gets worship in two different ways. One, when we deepen in our walk with him, when we give over more aspects of our lives to him, that's worship. When we trust him in our relationships, when we trust him with our finances, when we trust him with our careers, when we trust him, we worship him every time we grow individually as disciples. That's why we want to move you from this large crowd into a smaller crowd where you can work through those different areas of your life and learn to worship God more. That pleases him and it brings his favor down in your life. But that's just one of the two ways. The other way is when more people worship him. Meaning people who aren't worshiping him right now start to worship him. We call that evangelism. That's how we share the good news of Jesus Christ with others so others can begin to worship him and that warms and pleases God's heart because it's good for them and it glorifies him. And both of those are absolutely core and central to God. In fact, you can't do one without the other. The two go hand in hand. Worship exists, honestly, because, or evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason people travel to places where they've never heard the gospel before is because worship does not exist in that place, and God wants people in every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him for their good and for his glory. And if there's one weakness that I think exists on a broad level in the Western church, and I'm focusing on the Western church because I don't believe this is true in the church across the world, it's that second type of worship. We have lost our mission of reaching new people and bringing them in to worship. We're all about us worshiping more and figuring out more ways for us to worship. And, and, and we'll use every excuse we can. We use all kinds of phrases. We say, oh, well, it's not about numbers, Pastor. It's not about numbers. You know what? The only people that it's not about numbers for are the people that are already part of God's family. Do you know when a number was really important? When I wasn't one of them. And someone thought about numbers when I was a 20-year-old total idiot, wasting my life and running it down into the ground. He thought about a number, and that number had a name on it, and it changed my life forever. So yes, it is about numbers, because every number has a name, and every name is important to God. 
You can't do one without the other. You can't just say, well, we just need to be more deep as disciples. You can't become deep as disciples without expanding as disciples. The two go hand in hand. In fact, if you were to run that to its end, what if that's all we did? If all we were doing, all we were about was deepening our discipleship. You know what? Whatever number of people we have here, we just deepened it and we didn't care if we ever reached anyone else. This church would be dead in one generation. Because all those deep Christians, guess what they're going to do? They're going to die and they're going to end six feet deep in the ground. Every one of us. If we don't expand our worship, the church dies in one generation. And the only reason you and I are here is because some previous Christians believed that numbers do matter. They matter to God. And they need to start mattering to us as a church. Paul's leaving this church with these last teachings. And I don't know about you, but I've always taught most of my life, been taught most of my life, that the last things that a person says are often some of the most important and closest and dearest things to his heart. And that's where Paul's going to end this message, talking about how we as Christians relate to those outside of Christianity. He's going to show us two things in this passage, so I want you to follow along with us. In verse 2, it starts in chapter 4. It says, Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, he's saying, hey, as you're praying, so he's always telling us to pray. We see that throughout this book. But now he's telling us to focus aspects of our prayer while we're praying on something very specific. Listen to what he says. At that time when you're praying, at the same time, pray also for us, which is Paul and the apostles, other church leaders at that time, Pray that God may open a door to us for the word. He's talking about opening a door in places that haven't heard the word. He's talking about evangelization in places that haven't heard it. Uh, To speak the mystery of Christ. That's just a fancy way of the gospel. For which I am in chains. Paul's in prison because he's been doing that. So that I may make it known as I should. Here's my first point. For you, real simple. My worship is reflected in how I pray for the gospel to be spread. My worship is reflected in how I pray for the gospel to be spread. So I would say it this way. Let me flip it around. That you're not truly worshiping God with all your heart. I don't care how high you put your hands up and how loud you sing and how much you enjoy worship music. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying if, if that's the entity of your worship and it never trickles down into how you pray for lost people to hear the gospel, then you're doing something when your hands are up in the air, but you're not worshiping this God of the Bible. You're worshiping something when you're singing very loud, but you're not worshiping this God of this Bible. You can call that something, but don't call it Christianity. Christianity has always been about worship that's expanding and reaching new people who don't yet know about Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. One of the simple ways you can do that, this is just a very simple way, and I'd encourage you, I, I long for this, is Paul in this passage is saying how important it is that you pray for your spiritual leaders, for your church leaders, for your pastors, and for missionaries. Pray that God will give us open doors to speak the word. Right here, even in our service. We need to hear that right here. If we aren't praying for our church services, if, when we come, if we haven't taken time to say, hey, I hope that, that, that the pastor speaks the word of God clearly today, that he makes the gospel known, and that God opens up hearts 
to hear that message and receive it. Man, that's one of the greatest prayers I covet, is that people pray for me in that realm. A lot of you have prayed for my back these last few weeks, and I'm feeling better, but you know what I need more than my back to feel better? I need God to open a door into people's hearts so that the words that he shares through this time don't just hit a wall and drop down. My back, guess what? I want it to get better, don't get me wrong, but my back eventually is going to give out on me no matter how hard you pray for me. There's probably going to be a time when they'll have to wheel me up here to do my job at some point. Because that's what happens to our bodies. Our outer man is wasting away, but our inner man is being renewed day after day. So pray that the gospel goes on and goes forth more than anything from this pulpit, whoever's up here. But here's what he, how he tells us to do this. Listen to this. He says uh, three things he terms in terms of the attitude. is One of them is devote yourselves to prayer. Be devoted to it. Uh, be alert in it. He uses like military terms to say, hey, we got to be aware of the battle that's going on in the hearts and the souls of people. Be alert in our prayers. I think Paul says that because if we're honest, do you know where most of our prayers go to? Do you know who our favorite person to pray for in the world is? There's three people that we love to pray for. Me, myself, and I. Majority of our prayer time, and there's nothing wrong with praying for ourselves, we need to, but Paul says, you got to be alert for this, because if you were to just take, like, take a poll of your prayers, you might stop seeing most of our prayers are incredibly internally focused. And Paul's saying, we need to nudge them out a little bit further. And be thankful that someone else prayed for us at a season when we didn't even know to pray for ourselves. So keep our hearts alert to where we're, we're doing so and, and, and do so with thanksgiving, recognizing that we have a God who's sovereign over all these things and acts and hears our prayers. And he tells us what to pray for. So those are how we pray. And then he tells us what to pray for. He says that God may open a door to us for the word. Pray that. Pray those things in our services. Pray it for our small groups. As you're a small group leader, this is a great thing for you to pray. Pray that God would open doors when you get together with your group. And you'd have the clarity to proclaim the mystery of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage says, the mystery of Christ. We get so caught up oftentimes just proclaiming moral truths or principles, but Paul kept focusing on the gospel, the mystery of Christ. And here's why I think he says that. Because the mystery of the gospel, which is encompassed in all the scriptures and constantly points back to it, is different than any other message you will ever hear in the world. You would never make up a religion like Christianity from the world. And, and, and you can study this. If you studied any of the world religions, and just narrow them down, every other world religion, there, there's differences in them, but the, here's the general tenet of every single world religion that's ever existed. In fact, even Christianity morphs to this when man gets too involved and forgets to keep the gospel centered. But here's every religion in the whole world. There's a God up here, whatever it is they worship, Okay? And here's a bunch of rules, and depending on how you perform, your performance will determine your acceptance before that God. That is every single world religion. Read about them. 
for yourself. Christianity is not like that. It flips that whole thing on its head. It's a mystery because no human being would ever come up with a religion like this. Christianity says, hey, you've already failed. You can't perform at any level that's close to the holiness of God. In fact, Jeremiah even told the Israelites that your righteousness, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. But he said, I've made a way for you to relate. And it's not based on your performance. What the beauty of this is when you base something on performance, guess what? All the things that affect you and make it possible for you to accomplish that, like socioeconomic class, your education background, even maybe the race you come from and the advantages or disadvantages you have, all those things make it difficult for you to incorporate and climb up that ladder because it's based on where you started from. And sometimes we just have different starting places than everyone else. So the religions of the world are the most bigoted and racist and, and, and select people out based on their performance, which isn't fair because we all start in different places. Only the gospel has a level playing field because it says the smartest and richest man in the world is no closer to God than the poorest and least educated. And the way you reach this God has nothing to do with your performance, but everything to do with Jesus' performance. He's the only perfect sinless man. He's the only one who ever lived out these principles. And the mystery of the gospel is that this perfect human being, both God and man, who should have been the most rewarded and celebrated figure at the end of his life. Man, his funeral service should have been packed out with people going, man, he was such an amazing guy. He should have been whisked up in a chariot and celebrated by God because of how he lived. But instead, he was crucified. But not just any death, the most horrific death you could ever have in that time. He was treated like the least or the worst of criminals. But for a reason. Because you and I, who actually are the worst of criminals, as much as we might clean ourselves up on the outside, He died for you and for me. So that His Righteousness is credited to us and our sin was placed on him. People, you can't make that up. If that mystery wasn't revealed to you and I, we'd have never found it. And that's what Paul says needs to be proclaimed every time and to prayed for that that mystery is communicated so people can believe it and trust in it. You know, the early church understood that, that their true mission of, of healing spiritually sick and, and doing that. And, and Jesus, I think, uh, often faced so many challenges in those days when he was here because people would constantly, religious people would constantly come up to him and say, You know, what is this guy doing? Why do you guys act the way you do? 
Why do you hang out with sinners and, and so forth? And in Luke chapter 5, Jesus responded to them and he used this little metaphor. He said, you know, it's not the, the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And he says, I've come to heal those that are sick. That's how Jesus summarized his mission. And, and my thought is, is, if that's how Jesus summarized his mission, maybe the church could summarize its mission is kind of like a hospital maybe, right? We have even more than just one person that we should be a hospital where sick people can come and we are taking care of them with this message of the gospel that we've been entrusted with. But my fear is, is that the church has become more like a clinic that's lost its, its, its purpose because sick people don't want to go there anymore. They feel like they show up and people are going, oh my goodness, you're sick. You got stuff, man. I don't want to sit next to you. And so what happens is we're a hospital that's, that's got programs that, that are no longer serving sick people. And we've got programs that, that we spend more time in our staff meetings and hanging out with other doctors and other nurses. And we've created all these things that just facilitate our staff meetings and our, our nurses hanging out and our families hanging out. And, and we haven't even looked around to say, where are the sick people? It's like we, we aren't even aware that that's what we're supposed to be about. And I wonder if what Paul is talking about here has fallen on deaf ears in our modern Western church. Because I'll be honest with you, I've spent a fair amount of time in hospitals with people and with our own kids and different things. They're not super comfortable places to be, but they're extremely effective at what they do. Paul goes on to, to say, what would that look like in spreading it? How should we act as, as people? And he says in verse 5, he says this, Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Here's my second Second point that I think comes right out of this is my worship is reflected in how I act towards unbelievers. My worship is reflected in how I act toward unbelievers. So let me ask a couple questions. How safe do you think our church services are for unbelievers and skeptics? Just think about that. How much time did you give this morning thinking about what it would be like for a outsider to be here. Or let me phrase that another way. Did you spend as much time thinking about what it would be like for someone who, who knows that they're far from God and is struggling in lots of areas and is maybe thinking of going to church? Did you give as much time to think about what we're doing to make a person come into this place knowing that this would be a place of healing as you did about uh, whether your favorite songs would be sung or whether the pastor that you really like to listen to that morning, whether he'll be preaching, or whether someone will be sitting in your chair when you get here, or the AC will be turned on properly, or heaven forbid we run out of coffee. I mean, coffee is literally the Holy Spirit in the Western church, right? I mean, and people freak out over those things. I'm just asking some questions that come, I think, from this text. Because they reveal 
the reality or maybe the lack thereof of worship in our hearts. So how do I act wisely? I'm so glad you asked that question because that's what Paul's talking about. Here's wisdom. Here's a definition that I think comes right from Scripture. Is wisdom is the skillful application of knowledge. Wisdom is the skillful application of knowledge. The whole book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. It's how to take knowledge and, and properly apply it. And here's what I want you to see in here. Is, is you can have a whole bunch of knowledge and still be a fool. The book of Proverbs talks about that. Wisdom is not about how much you know. It's about how skillfully you apply what you know. And I think as the modern Western church, we've packed a whole bunch of information in our heads, but I love how Charles Chuck Swindoll says it, is we traffic in unlived truths. We have a whole bunch of stuff up here, but we're not very skillful in how we're putting it Together. I love this one proverb that talks about the goal of wisdom. Proverbs 11.30 uh, says this, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and a wise person captivates people. Some of your translation will actually say wins people or wins them over. That wisdom, the goal of wisdom, is not just for us to have a great life. The goal of wisdom is to draw other people into a relationship to, with God because Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. It's to help people see the source of wisdom. So wisdom has at its heart the goal of seeing other people drawn to Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that that's what the church does very well nowadays, or as well as we should. Let's see how Paul did it. Because Paul, who's writing this letter, gives us some examples, and we see it in his own life. In fact, 1 Corinthians 9, he kind of gives us a, a personal mission statement of, of how he leveraged wisdom or how he viewed it in his own life. He says this, Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? Why did he do that? Oh, wait, wait hang on, he tells us. In order to win more people. Let's go on. Paul says, To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win Jews, to those under the law like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. So let me, let me I'm going to summarize because there's some principles here. Paul, Paul was willing to use his freedom to serve others. Where we're brought up in a nation that says, use your freedom to serve yourself. We're free. It's all about me. No one should be telling you what to do. That's the American way. We're all about freedom as well. But we are been told to leverage it for something different. Where Paul says, your greatest use of freedom is for the service of others. How can I use my freedom to serve other people. The other thing we're going to see, watch what he says here, he summarizes it. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, save some. So Paul used his freedom to serve other people, not serve himself. The other thing we see, whether it was Jews or, or under the law or people without the law or the weak, Paul was willing to put aside his own preferences. What he's talking about is saying everyone has their own customs and culture and ways of doing things. And most of that's 
non-moral issues. There are some moral things that creep in there, but Paul's talking about non-moral ways in which things are done. Okay? We sometimes make non-moral issues moral issues because they're just not our preference. And instead of just owning it or acknowledging it as a preference or a custom, we make it more moral than it really is. But it's not. So what did Paul do? When, when Paul was free, he didn't say, you know what, I'm not going to act like those Jews. I don't like their, they, they better adopt to my preferences. This is how I do church. And by golly, if they don't adapt and figure out how I do this, let them go to hell. Is that what he said? Because a lot of us are saying that. Let's just, I'm just laying the cookies out very clearly. When we cling to our preferences, when we have to do things the way we want to do them, rather than stopping and saying, why are we here? We're here for what Paul was doing in order to win other people to Jesus Christ. How do I wisely do that? Well, one of the ways we wisely do that is we think about what are their preferences? How do they do things? And and I'm talking about non-moral issues, okay? How can we adapt this so that this is appealing to them or it's welcoming to them or understood to them? He constantly thought about those whom he was reaching and catered everything, took the gospel and wrapped it in clothing that could be understood in those particular settings in order to win them to Jesus Christ. I think if we're honest, we spend more time thinking about how this service should cater to me, the mature one, as opposed to others. Think of you did this in your own home. Think of a children in your home. Think of all, like, parents are like fanatics about this nowadays. Like, they baby-proof their house. Like, it's like adults, you can't get into this stuff anymore, right? We, we, we take everything and we shape it around these kids because they're immature and they need help and they need guidance. And so we, we, we don't make them the center. Well, we do make them the center in some ways. But we, we frame things so that they are able to develop. Then we come to church and it's just the opposite. We want this to be all about us. And I've been, I've been here longer than anyone and by golly, we better do things the way I want them done. I know I'm meddling right now, but I'm kind of a meddler. It's just what I do. And I've had to be meddled in as well. My life has been transformed by being part of a church that did just this. And I watched it grow through con- like real growth, not like people getting ticked off at some other church and then coming to our church. We call that, that's church growth in America. You know what church growth is? It's new people coming to faith. It's like actually us getting out there with people we're uncomfortable with and, and showing them what Jesus, how much he loves them and how he can interact with them, how he can change their lives. And I saw that for years. For 10 years, we saw 25 to 50 people come to the Lord and be baptized every single year. It was 250 people when I got there. We were over 800 when I left. We were this size right here when I came. That church changed my life. And I can't go back. I won't go back. 
I have 15 less years of my life than I had when I went there to do what I do. The last thing I'm going to do is sit around and try to please a bunch of grumpy, persnickety people who want things their own way. And I can be one of those. I'm speaking this to myself as well. We all love our preferences. And I believe the heart of this church is turning towards this city. And we can't go back. We can't go back to where we've been. This church has been diminishing in its past. It's had some really unhealthy years. I'm just going to say things that need to be said, the elephant in the room. It's been really unhealthy. When you go from 2,500 to 800, that's not a sign of health. And we can't blame anyone except us. Let's own it. We were here. We're part of it. Okay. So let's change. You know what? I had to go into the doctor because my back was locked up. It was unhealthy. I could have sat at home and just said, you know what? I'm not going to see anyone. I'm just going to stay here and be locked up the rest of my life. Or I could say, I need help. I'm not healthy. I need to go see someone to help me get healthy. And as they did that, they've told me things I need to adjust, things I need to change. And I'm here today. Same is true for churches. Churches go through these cycles. And we're either going to continue a cycle and Austin Oaks Church will be something of the past or what I think Pastor Brandon believes and the leaders of this church believe is that there's a brand new season coming over this church. But it's not going to happen until we take principles like this that make us all a little uncomfortable and we put them into practice. And we start saying, are we really a hospital? Okay, so hospitals, they're waiting for patients to come in. They're not there waiting for the doctors and the nurses to come in. You and I, we're the doctors and the nurses. We should be saying, who's coming today? How are we making sure that that we're ready to serve them? How are we prepared with things that are going to speak the gospel into their hearts? Not what we want, not how we want it done, but what's going to be most effective to help these new patients, just like we were at one point, hear the gospel, receive the gospel, and begin that journey so that we can get them on our team and then start reaching more people with them as well. That's acting wisely like Paul did. Hudson Taylor, if you've ever heard of Hudson Taylor, he was a 19th century missionary to China. He was a pioneer in this. Up until that point, missions in the West, from the West, which is where a lot of it took place at that time, had, had this arrogant mindset that when we go to other places, not only do we need to share the gospel with them, but we got to get them to adopt our culture and our customs and the way we do things. And so it went around trying to make every part of the world look like the Western world. It's just, it's just arrogance. And Hudson Taylor had a totally revolutionary approach to missions. In, in fact, China was closed. You could, no one was effective in China at all during that time. And he went in, he, he dressed like the Chinese, he grew his hair out, made a ponytail like the Chinese, he adopted the Chinese customs, and almost single-handedly 
has changed the spiritual climate of a country that was so dark. I mean, the China Inland Mission, thousands of ministry or missionaries have come since then. The, the underground church in China is flourishing and reaching more people than the American church reaches here with a fraction of the resources. And guess who Hudson Taylor's greatest critics were and how he did things? There's other Christians, other Christian missionaries who were so stuck in their ways that they couldn't adopt what Paul adopted to say, whatever I need to become for the sake of others. How would you say we're doing at this? When you think of of our church, when you think about this church, do you think about the things that would most please you when you come? Or does what fires you up the most? Are they those things that say, this is going to reach our city? Yeah, it's going to cost me something. It's going to make me a little uncomfortable. But that's what hospitals do. That's what doctors do. That's what nurses do. They risk their own lives to bring health to the sick. That's not even necessarily a spiritual thing. That's just their physical jobs. Shame on us if we as a body, as we as an organization who have an eternal cause, an incredibly spiritual cause, if we aren't willing to risk more than people are in their physical occupations, what does that say about us? What does that, more importantly, say about our Savior? You ever wondered how many... How many of Jesus' preferences he clung to? When he came down here to serve us. Do you ever think he got a little bored in our worship services and said, man, I could show you what worship looks like. Do you ever wonder if he thought... I mean, think about this. Jesus was the richest man to ever walk this earth. Let me say that again. Jesus was the richest man to ever walk this earth. He created everything. Do you ever think he didn't want to use that power to, to meet his own personal preferences instead of serving yours and mine? I'm just asking some questions. I got to wrap this up. I'm not quite sure how to do it, but let me do it like this. We saw Paul's example. We see Hudson Taylor's example. You see lots of people that followed in their footsteps that often are criticized. We're going to be criticized. Our greatest critics will be other Christians when we start risking 
to reach our city. Once our church starts looking like our city, and I don't mean in our morals and all that, I mean in just how people look. When we got people that come in that, that look like Austin, and we're leading them to the Lord, people are going to ask some questions. Let them ask. Let them ask. So we got a greater person we're answering to. We've got a greater strand of people that we want to follow after. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do when he bumped into a prostitute? Did he start condemning her? Did he start lobbying to pass laws to move all the prostitutes out of this part of town? I can't believe I'm having to see this stuff as I walk through town. Did he try to, you know, make all these changes out externally? Or did he do what we see in the scriptures? Did he defend a prostitute against the religious people who are trying to condemn her? And then look her in the eye. Tell her, go sin no more. He saw her as a human being. He hung around people like that. What did Jesus do when he came across sinners and tax collectors? The Bible tells us he sat down and ate dinner with them. Jesus is called a friend of sinners. Remember when he bumped into a woman? This is one of my favorite stories. He bumps into a woman who had not been married three times. She hadn't been married four times. She'd had five failed marriages. Man, that's a heyday for the church today. We love to pound our pulpits and get on people that have had failed marriages. But Jesus bumps into this woman that had blown it five different times. And then he just throws out there just to add a little bit to it. He says, yeah, you know the guy you're living with right now? He's not your husband wasn't an issue to him in that sense of causing him to withdraw or condemn. This woman was so shamed. She was so rejected by society. She had to come and get water in the heat of the day because every other decent woman in her community came out in the morning when it was nice and cool to carry those large pots of water. She couldn't even face them. Man, what would the church do to a person like that? What would Jesus do? He would look her in the eye and he would address her like no man in that society would, much less a spiritual religious leader. And he would tell her, woman, I can give you water such that you will never thirst again. Can you imagine a church where people like that didn't creep their way in wondering if they'd be okay. They ran across the city to see what they would experience at a place that's going to point them to Jesus. It's not going to 
look at the brokenness in their life, but is going to stop and say, hey, I can relate. I was a broken mess too. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. That's going to point them to a Savior rather than point out all of their flaws. And first help them meet Him before we feel like we need to fix them. Because I don't know about you, Jesus does a much better job at it than I ever have. But you know what I can do? I can proclaim this gospel. I can tell them about him. And I can act wisely and speak graciously enough to people so that maybe they'll give me an ear to hear about who truly can change their life forever. Can you imagine being part of a church like that? I can. And I hope you can too. And I hope when you leave today that this truth so annoys you that you can't get it out of your heart. You can't get it out of your head until you're willing to lay down the things in your life that are keeping you from being the church that we're called to be. Let's pray. And we're going to celebrate together and, and affirm some things together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. <laughs> we don't read it, Lord. It really reads us. And these truths hit close to home for all of us, Lord. I pray that you weave them into our hearts and our minds so that we here at Austin Oaks Church, Lord, we become that hospital in our city. We become that triage center in our city that starts spreading and people of every background and every struggle and every issue know that this is a place they can run to and be pointed to one who created them and is redeeming them with the power of Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection for His glory and for our good. Amen.